Welcome to Mercedes Second Chance Podcast, where we share real life stories about addiction, getting clean and being given a second chance. Hi, my name is Mercedes Whitecalf and this is Mercedes Second Chance. I am here with a wonderful guest. I have the I have the opportunity of meeting with a dear friend and a mentor of mine, Mr. Walter Bailey. Why don't you talk about who you are and kind of what you do? Hey, sure. Thank you for having me, Mercedes. Uh, gosh, Walter Bailey. Yeah, mentor. Um, slash. Slash uh, a variety of other things. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know exactly what you want to know first, but definitely I'm very excited about this opportunity. Yeah. So basically, um, you know, what amazes me about you is that you're like me. You come from where I come from. Our stories are somewhat different, but we're really the same um, in kind. Um, You talked about openly on platforms of struggling with substance abuse and addiction. You talked about being a local native. You're from here. Um, Dreams of going to it's the NFL, right? Um, And then not going but then having a second chance at life and being something that is to me even more greater because you impact so many more people doing what you do now. Um, and so I guess, yeah, I just wanted to kind of start with how did it all start? Hey, okay. Well, it all started. I don't know how my mom and dad met, but (laughs) (laughs) conceived in 1970, I, you know, breaking it all the way down. I, I come from Portland uh, come from a lot a love, loving, kind family. Uh, I'm the youngest of five uh, siblings. Um, I, I tell you what, I mean, there was dysfunction, um, but there was nothing but love. But what I what I remember from what people tell me is I before I could walk, I could run. So somehow, you know, running <laughs> athletics, natural came, born athlete, right? Just okay. athletics came came into play. And what I can say is. I picked up on that very, very quickly, um, had other, had my other siblings that were athletes and and stuff. And it just was a a natural fit for me. But also as I got older, what I realized too is I was good. Right. But I, I paid the price, right. From getting beat up and slammed by my older brothers because I have four older brothers and my sister's the oldest. And, um, it was tough love, right? right. Tough love. There was church and all of these things. But as I got older, what I what I realized is, is I was naturally gifted at sports, but I also realized there was something inside of me that was missing. Yeah, right? something, yeah. It was just something that was, was missing. And so when I say missing, as I got a little older, I think I replaced whatever I was missing with acting out and acting out was negative for me because acting out here comes school. So I started mm-hmm. acting out and getting in trouble and I could, you know, retro back retrospect back to by the time I was in first grade, mm-hmm. right. Um, just getting in trouble, Woodlawn middle grade school. Mm-hmm. And so my parents, by the time I was in the second grade, they made a decision to bust me out to a, a white school in the, in the suburbs called Sacagawea. And okay. I can tell you that I was like uh, eight, nine years old. And I just remember getting out there and being called the N word and I had to start fighting. So mm. those behaviors were still there, but it was a different look than in my community. Um, yet and still I'm playing 
well, I should say track was first. I did that first. You did track too. I did okay. tra- track was my first sport. You know, I still have a world record. Wow. Um, in the 880, uh, wow. nine and under. So by the time I was eight, nine, mm-hmm. my second sport was basketball. Okay. So in my transition from, you know, Woodlawn uh, grade school to Sacagawea, what I started to realize is that there were still behaviors that I was going through, but there were different people that didn't look like me. Right. There was more white people. Right. right? So there was a different circumstance and a different set of challenges for me. Right. Mm -hmm. So regardless of the challenges, I still have that behavior getting in trouble. But I started to understand the fact of regardless of me getting in trouble, I can still be this athlete. Right. I can Mm -hmm. still play uh, basketball and run track in the summer. And Mm -hmm. I got older. The behavior still persisted. Right. But the time I was in eighth grade, I was still having those behaviors. And then I had started football two years prior to that. So um, in sixth grade, I started playing football. So it was football, basketball, and track. Track being my first sport, I started loving basketball and football more. Mm-hmm. So I stopped being, oh, I shouldn't say as good. I just didn't practice. Put in effort right. like you did with the other Yeah, two. but it was still natural. It was a still natural fit. Uh-huh. Um, and I was great at it. But what I can say by eighth grade with these behaviors and moving forward, that magical magnifying mind of mine would still wander because I was missing something. Still and missing something. Still missing something. Right. Getting disciplined, getting beat and, by moms. And, and I only got a couple whippings from dad, but them was the most memorable ones because uh-huh. they was beatings. But that didn't stop the fact of whatever that was that I was missing. So... By the time I completed eighth grade. And when you say that didn't stop it, meaning you did things um, to get yourself in trouble and those beating, looking for something to fill that, that piece that you were missing and in the, and then getting in trouble, you got beat and you still didn't stop. You still were searching. Right. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and it's, and it's strange too, as we progress with this, I, I can come back and, and that'll be a caveat. But what I realized is, well, if you knew that you were going to get a whooping, why would you keep acting out? Well, when you go to school and you're young around new people, you, me, I'm trying to, I'm trying to gain some new friends, mm-hmm. right? But in all actuality, I was just a lost little kid trying to find my way. Mm-hmm. And what I felt I was missing, which I had no idea, it came and morphed into acting out to get attention because I wanted people to like me, right? Right. So attention seeking behaviors, I wanted that. So eighth grade, I Graduated eighth grade. I got suspended right before eighth grade graduation. And then the next thing I know, I had this conversation with my mother. See, you're going to high school now and you're not going to be doing all that stuff that you used to do because somebody going to be bullying you just like you bully these other people. And I kind of understood that or whatever. But during the summer, eighth grade to ninth grade year, I became a bottle count for the store across the street from my house on 15th and Deacon. Mr. Mm-hmm. Lee on this store, right? Mm-hmm. So I was able to be uh, this bottle count, and I was real excited making about five, ten dollars every weekend or whatever. But there was this um, Bartles and James commercial that would come on, mm-hmm. and and I remember vividly the California Cooler that when that came out because there were commercials for Bartles and James, and I was like, well, Bartles and James was the two older white men, but when California coolers came out. Ooh, it was like the party drink. So I said, Mm -hmm. Ooh, let me get that. But I didn't know. I was just, I was just saying it in my mind. So 
Mr. Lee said what he always does on a Saturday night. Hey, finish up mm -hmm. and then come back and let me know. So I stocked the shelf and then those new ones came in. It was uh, it was fruit punch. So I'm thinking fruit punch, but I knew better. I knew it was right. alcohol in it. And I put it outside, right? Is this how you took your first drink? This is how I took my first drink. Okay. He let me out. I went back, hit the top. Bam, once it hit, mm -hmm. that sense of ease and comfort that filled my belly. Um, and then that burp that came, and then it was on. It was like, I need that, mm -hmm. right? That's what I was missing. Right. But I had no idea because guess what? I drank half of it and got sick, right? Mm -hmm. So I didn't drink anymore. But then I get to high school, and this is what happened. I started to drink a little bit, but I started playing football, basketball, and track. But I was playing at a high level. So I ran track, varsity track. I ran, uh, or I played varsity basketball. And then I got to uh, play a little bit of varsity football, but I lettered in track and um, in basketball. But it was different because I had to act mature. And then before acting mature, I had to align with friends that were from the neighborhood that I knew and grew up with. So guess what was going on? Some other people was doing some other things that I'd never done before. Mm -hmm. And I took my first hit of weed. And the weed came, okay. Yeah, then I took that first hit of weed, and then next thing you know, I became like, ooh, let me, because I wanted to be accepted. Right. I wanted to be, I wanted to feel a part of. And through my freshman year, there were parties and all these things, but mind you, those behaviors still followed me, right? Freshman mm -hmm. year, I'm a fast forward. The progression of my disease followed me sophomore, junior, and through my senior You're year. You were drinking and smoking the whole drinking time. Drinking and smoking. So it went from a little bit to a little bit more to a little bit more and then to more. Mm -hmm. So by the time, you know, my sophomore year went, I still had these behaviors lettered in all three sports. Then I got my first letter of college from college, which, which was track, letter. right? Okay. From track okay. from... Mind you, it was, was it Stanford. Offered? It was yeah, Stanford. Stanford. I got it. I say, what? How? What? And this is while drinking and smoking. While drinking and smoking. Okay. So right? you. So you're the message. The subliminal message is this is okay. Well, it's it, not holding me back. This is okay, but this is what is making me identify with what I want. Mm -hmm. And what I want was what I thought other people wanted me to want, which was to be famous and mm. to be a figure. Because I didn't have the people skills. I was even doing interviews. But by the time I was a sophomore and I wound up getting another letter from the University of Pennsylvania, my world changed when I got when I became a junior in high school. Mm -hmm. Then all kinds of letters started coming for football. Right. So you got a you got you got the Stanford track letter when when I was a sophomore, when you were a sophomore, when okay. I was a sophomore. And I also got a letter from Pennsylvania. Uh, and to, ironically enough, two I academic, like iconic schools, mm -hmm. but I mean, I did okay, but, um, that's the, that's the other thing. So, so where'd you end up going? I wound what? up going to the university of Washington. So when did you get that offer? I got that in my junior, I would actually say, I think I got a letter when I was a sophomore, but they came to see me as a junior. So oh, when wow. my world changed is when recruiting really started taking off my junior year, so the University of Washington hit put put the full court press on me, but at the same time, playing these three sports and identifying these still these other issues that mm -hmm. were behaviorally, I felt like this. I felt like I can do no wrong because right. I just have to go out on the football field. Right. So 
That'll well, make up for yes, any, indeed, it'll yeah, make up for it. Shortcoming. So fast forward to my senior year, I knew I was going to commit to the University of Washington and had a great you know football career uh, season. Junior or excuse me, football season. I had a great basketball season and I had a decent track experience. But that track season, I didn't achieve like I did my my junior year. My junior year, I won state in the long jump. Mm-hmm. But like I said, I just stopped practicing because it wasn't. Right. It, track at that time, as I got older, I just lost interest because guess what? In Portland, people highlighted football at yeah. that time in basketball. Ba- right? Yeah, football and basketball. Right. Definitely. So for me, I knew I was going to University of Washington. I graduated high school and then I didn't pass my SAT. So I had to go to Western Washington up in Bellingham, right? Oh, uh-huh. yeah. I went to Bellingham and I went there for three quarters and the people up there, it was it was amazing. Um, it was like a glorified like high school all-star league, basically. Mm-hmm. But the people didn't think I was going to the University of Washington. And I was like, shoot. I'm out of here. Right. But guess what? When I got to uh, Western Washington, I could drink every day. And I didn't have to go to school. Right. Mm. So high school was different because I could have these you experiences. But I had to go home. To mm-hmm. mama and daddy's house. Right. There's some accountability. Right. And so, now you don't. Okay. Yeah. So once I get to uh, to Bellingham, I didn't have that accountability. But guess what? I ran out of money. It really mm-hmm. wasn't really behavioral challenges because I had to really act mature. So with no money, I just couldn't do stuff. Right. So I surrounded myself with people doing the same type of thing or whatever. Somehow I made it through the three quarters and then I had to go to um, PCC right, to get the rest of my credits to transfer into the University of Washington. Mm -hmm. Transferred into the University of Washington in uh, 1989, and I'll make this the the caveat. I had a beautiful career at the Mm -hmm. University of Washington. Played three years, went to three Rose Bowls, uh, (gasps) won two Rose Bowls and a national championship, which we split. Um, We tied with uh, Miami in 1991. Okay, Uh, But along the way, here comes the drinking. Right, because um, it still comes. Everything's yeah. coming with you. Oh it's getting goodness. dragged it from Portland you, right? to Bellingham to Portland to uh, yeah. Seattle. Okay. The progression. The progression, right. right. I'm thinking by the time I'm a senior, mm-hmm. I'm thinking I'm going to be a number one draft pick. Right. I'm thinking I'm getting ready to buy mama a house and uh, all my family yeah, houses yeah. And, and all of that. But guess what? I thought I was above the law. Mm-hmm. I thought I could talk to my coaches any old type of way. But nobody saw because of me drinking me smoking weed, me womanizing, that these behaviors were going to be detrimental to me. Right. Right. Self-destructive. Self-destructive behavior. So what happened from that point is I wound up um, not going to the NFL. I got hurt in the last Rose Bowl against Michigan. And then I had a decision to make. I went to uh, the NFL Combine 1993. And guess what? I tested positive for alcohol. Oh, no. Yeah. Okay. I tested positive for alcohol. So guess what? I signed a restricted free agent deal in um, for the New York Giants. My best friend was a tight end that was drafted drafted the year before. Man, I went out mm-hmm. there. I was killing them. Mm-hmm. I was killing them. But guess what? I couldn't. I that that alcohol, right? But right. weed, marijuana was in my system. So they took another UA, and I'll never forget this call. Nineteen ninety three, July. Dan Reeves just was appointed a head coach to the New York Giants, called me on my break before I was going to go back for summer camp to start for their, uh, for the New York Giants. He said, Walter, you're a hell of an athlete. I would love to have you on our team, but unfortunately this is an investment and you are not in that mode because of certain things. 
we have to go with somebody that we can depend on. And it broke my heart because that was the first time I ever been cut from anything in my life. And I tell you what, I had an agent at the time. I cried. And uh, in, in a day I was playing Canadian football, right? Mm -hmm. I played Canadian football. So I didn't, I met uh, the expectation to get to uh, the NFL, but I didn't achieve that. But I played in the Canadian Football League um, for a year. I had a great time. But here comes the partying and here comes the womanizing. Because like you said, whatever I, wherever I went, there I'll go. Right. Yeah, so all those were. behaviors mm -hmm. came with me. They right. came. They were they were attached to me at, at the hip. And so people wise, my family, I still had all the support and a lot of love and admiration. But people didn't even know I was in the blender. I was in this sick abyss that I had no idea. Right. right. I had no idea. Right? right. So guess what? After that year, I got um, traded to a different Canadian football team and I didn't take the measures or whatever. I was supposed to sign this contract and I didn't do it because I just wanted to go to Edmonton and just show up and show out for one more year. So I can go back to the NFL. Do you know, I got there in Edmonton, 1994, they cut me on my third day. What? No, my second day, what? my second day, because I didn't sign a contract oh, and they was that, like, yeah, that technicality. Oh. yeah. So they, so they cut me. So check it out. This is where it gets ugly. Mm -hmm. I had a decision to make. I was coming back to Portland. I'm on the plane from Edmonton and mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I can keep working out or I can come back to Portland and get my truck and go back to Seattle and party. <laughs> and I decided to party. Yes, indeed. Okay. And that's oh. where, and that's where my life spiraled out of control for the next 20 years. Um, becoming a father, not being there for my, my daughter had another daughter, not being able to be there for her, um, not being able to hold a job started, uh, running through the lives of my family and friends like a tornado. Mm -hmm. I never could tell the truth about where I was. Right. We right? live double lives. Yes, indeed. Mm -hmm. I could never. And also with that progression became more prevalent for me to try something different and new. So anything look, anything that looked good, tastes good and felt good. I was putting into my body. Right. Right. For that instant gratification. Yeah. yeah. So take it from 1994. Mm -hmm. Until I made a decision in 2010 that I needed help. And that wasn't easy, right? But I was in a crack house. So from 1994 to 2010, you were partying. I was. So the, you thought. Yeah, well, it, it was, it started, the abyss and tornado started in 1994. Uh -huh. And basically all that meant was for me not having any accountability to anything. Right, right. right? And then it went on to 2010. And what happened in 2010? 2010 me staying in a crack house that's me, how right at the end of the road me being in a crack house my best friend um had been in contact so when i use mm -hmm. and at that time my my disease had progressed by the time i got to that level i don't i first of all i didn't have no money mm -hmm. <laughs> i ain't got nothing right besides two bags of, uh, uh, standing in a crack house right, right? yeah mm -hmm. two bags of two plastic bags of of, of garbage right mm -hmm. but somebody let me use their phone and my best friend was in recovery and I just happened to call him. And the way it went wow. down was two girls were in treatment and one girl I used to get loaded with. So she, she escaped out of, um, uh, out of treatment from central city concern, the eight by eight. Right. Oh, and wow. this girl brought another girl with her mm -hmm. over here. So of course I'm like, cause they had money and, 
and they wanted to get the stuff. So I was like, yeah, let's do it. So that next morning, all the stuff's gone and whatever. Then the girl goes like this. She called her sponsor and she was like, yeah, I'm here in this crack house with Walter. And I was like, what? I was like, hold on. You're going to just say my name. Mm -hmm. And then I was heated. But mm -hmm. then she said something that turned my life around. She said, 12 steps doesn't work. And I started to cry because this person, I would see them and in, in the, the, the last year of my disease, this person would get clean like four months at a time and get a car, get a job and get a place to live. And I was like, after thinking about it, I started crying because I said, no, it worked in you. It worked in you. Mm -hmm. And she was like, no, it doesn't. Grabbed her friend and she wanted more money from the, from whoever the sponsor was or whatever to come and get her. Mm -hmm. That's when I made the call to my best friend. His name is Matt. And uh, whoever's phone it was, mm -hmm. they um, he wasn't there. I left him a message. And Matt called it back. And he was like, whoa. And then I said, hey. And he was like, hey, your parents miss you. Oh, I miss you. Yeah. What do you want to do? And I said, I don't know. Usually I'm hip slick and cool. Always got an answer. Mm -hmm. But I said, I don't know. And then he goes, are you willing to go to any length? And I said, uh, I don't know. To stay clean. Right. Because mm -hmm. I didn't know nothing about that. Mm -hmm. and then he goes, um, where are you? And I said, I'm on 33rd and in mm. Killingsworth. And, and it was close to there, but um, he 32nd and Simpson. <laughs> so mm -hmm. he goes, okay, give me the address and I'm coming to get you. He was there in 20 minutes. The dude opened his, his car door, door and it was like me seeing the second coming of Jesus Christ. Like his smile and whatever it was, I felt instantly from all that garbage and all the crux of me and this disease that was on my back like a bear or a gorilla. Someone was, came to it get was, you out. Yeah, it just, that was your it just exit from hell. It mm -hmm. just released. And so from that point, this is what happened. I transitioned mm -hmm. with him because he had already had four years clean and sober. So I went into an AA oh. meeting and I started raising my hand. Mm -hmm. And the next thing you know, I had a month and a half clean and sober. Mm -hmm. and, and he was feeding me. I was reading a big book. Then I transitioned to DePaul Treatment Center. Mm -hmm. And I went through treatment for six months got out right before I got out. My father passed away. Mm -hmm. I was able to see him on his deathbed and my Clean. dad. Yes. Mm -hmm. My dad and I had this, this horrific loving hate relationship, yeah. but he loved me because he saw me going down the wrong path. Right. And what he saw was the last day before he passed, he said, let me see my baby. And I came into the room. My best friend came and got me on the emergency pass. And when he looked at me, he took off his glasses. My dad was six, four, two fifteen. By the time the cancer uh, ate him up, mm -hmm. he was he was 6'4", 160 pounds, but he still had his mind. And he took his glasses off and put it back. He said, come over here. He said, that's my baby. He said, baby. he said, that's all I wanted. And boom, immediately, I knew that for my life, I didn't know it was going to continue to change, but that was the beginning of a new life. Mm -hmm. I put that old life down and then started to recreate my new life then you know started going to different meetings to n-a-a-a -A -A, all the a's right all the a's yeah you know what i mean so mm -hmm. i just started getting blessed in all of these things but i also remembered that there was a a simple suggestion that i needed to follow what if was i was going to do and that was to take contrary action and to take suggestions 
Right. Like, I remember them saying that, right. like, if nothing changes, nothing changes. Yes. You know, like, and then they say all you have to change is everything. Everything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, so that's what I was able to do. I was able to uh, adhere to some principles in my life and some steps. What were the life. principles that you were adhering to? Like three main ones. The three main principles. And I'll just bring it back to the golden rules. Like do no harm to other people. Um, integrity. Integrity. Right? And be honest. And integrity is what? Doing right. Doing, doing the right, right thing, thing when, when no one's watching. watching. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so just implementing these things into my life. And what I started to slowly notice is those relationships that I destroyed from my daughters, my oldest daughter and my youngest daughter, they didn't happen overnight, mm -hmm. but I stayed sober. And they were being what? restored. Yes. They yes. started being restored, restoring relationships with my mother. My father passed away. I was going to go stay with my best friend. But since my father passed away, I went back and took care of my mother. Took care of mommy. Yeah. yeah. For like six and a half years until she passed. And so you the, lost both your parents. I lost both of my parents okay. um, in recovery. But I'll tell you the most beautiful gift in my life was working the steps with my um, sponsor at uh, a year and a half sober. Is that, would you like attribute working the steps to not going back and getting loaded when your parents died? I would, I, you know, I just feel like it's the metamorphosis of my change, per, my change and progression um, in life. Cause I don't know about if I would have ever gotten loaded again, if I wouldn't have, mm. um, you know, gone through treatment or taking the steps. But what I can say is I did that. I right. did it. You, and that right? was a suggestion. Yeah, so you get was, a uh, meeting, get a sponsor, yeah. work the 12 steps because yeah. they're 12 steps program. That's right. Yeah, I did it. But here's the beauty in this, the third step. So I did step one, two, and then at the What's third, the third step, the third step was, was, we made a decision to turn our will and, and our lives, lives to, over the, to the care of God as we understand, understand him. Right. Right. But my mother was very religious. My mother used to pray for me. Like I would go over there loaded when I would needed to get some money. And I used to steal from my mother. I used to break into my parents' house mm -hmm. when I was getting loaded. I would steal the hard earned money that she made. Right. So. So for me, as I, you know, clam up thinking about it, mm -hmm. I had to realize this. I'm taking this step and my sponsor, we would, so we're in this little room like this, right? My mother would be out there and my mother would be praying. She would be work witting Jesus, <laughs> covering with the blood of Jesus, That's Lord, right. restore him to sanity. She would be listening to our conversation. Would you and your I, sponsor? Yeah. And I would be feeling big and I would be feeling great. And I'll be looking at my sponsor. He just knew I just had this intent of, of success. Cause it just, whatever was going on, was working. Yeah. But I had developed and started cultivating a relationship with my higher power, which is God, as I understand it. Right. Cause so that's I, what the 12 steps are right? for. Yeah. Just get us closer to God. Yeah. So right. moms was, I, I wasn't scared of God anymore. Right. So we took the step and then my sponsor hugged me and he was like, Hey man, I just want to ask you something. What do you think about you and I going in and getting on our knees with your mom? And saying the third step prayer, man, I started, I started pop locking. I was like, right. Ooh, I, I right. got goosebumps. I got goosebumps because we grabbed each other's hand and I can, I can take you through it, take you through it. It was once we recited it and to hear my mother being a part of it, mm. God was all over us. He was all over us. And I felt like I was levitating, but I also realized that the sincerity of purpose in my life had just become crystal clear. Continue on the path. 
right. continue on the path. Right. And that's what I did through each step. And, you know, as I uh, completed the steps and then I was like, I was so fired up <laughs> and I get fired up when it comes to recovery because that's that's my life. Yeah, because you, know, what, you know what you went through. People that, yeah. say that to me, like, yeah. why are you so fired up? Why, you know, and it's like. If you knew what I had been through, if you was where I was, you would be jumping too. You would be laughing too, right. you know, because it's like the slingshot um, analogy. Like the further we are pulled back, you know, the further down the scale we go, yeah. you know, the better it feels once we've gone up That's it. and when we continue to go up. That's it. Yeah. That's um, it. Okay. So then um, you were your parents, your mom was like totally accepting to the 12 step um, program and she's Christian and religious. And then what happened next? From that, I finished the steps, and then at two years sober, I started to work at the treatment center that I that I went through. That you went right. to, okay? Yeah, I started as a what a turnaround. A, a, yeah, a yeah. milieu counselor, and the next thing I know, there was a young brother that was younger than me that had more clean time, and he was a great counselor. He relapsed, and they oh, no. so I had been working there about a year, and then mm -hmm. they came at me and was like, "Hey." We need you to be a counselor. And I was like, I don't want to be a counselor. I like my little job right here. Right. Because it's scary to grow. It was scary. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so reluctantly, I, I took, I, I accepted it. And um, it was hard. It was really hard because everybody else had schooling about trainings. And I was thrown in and I was flying by the whim of my pants. And okay. um, I would not suggest that to anyone. But I'm so glad and grateful that I did it. But by the time I did it for three and a half years, mm -hmm. right, at DePaul, but I was ready to get out of that because it's a professional boundary and I learned a lot. But I wanted to be somebody that could encourage and also be a person that would be approachable mm -hmm. um, when it comes to recovery. And I felt like being a counselor, it, it enabled me. Um, it did not allow for me to do that because you had to have a professional boundary right, set, right. Um, in certain situations. So, and you do have your bachelor's degree, right? I do not. You don't? No, I do oh not. Oh my goodness. No. So, so I can tell you there's things in our lives or things in my life that I still need to achieve. To achieve yeah. And Maybe getting, if it's for you, yeah, that's God's will. Right? That's what I learned. Yes, if it it's did. God's will. Right. Yeah. You know, so one of the things though, I'm glad you brought that up is that's a part of, some of the things that you can uh, you can achieve, right? So I've achieved a lot of things, mm -hmm. but I still have other things that I can't wait to achieve, but I have to be humble enough mm -hmm. to understand that I have to set smart goals. So small, measurable, you know, are, uh, what is, is it? Small, action? measurable, attainable, attainable, realistic, and timely. Okay, right? that's goals. smart, yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So for, for me, I, I feel like I'm ever evolving. Um, right. And I think about that. I think about um, where I am. And I also think about, hey, what are other achievements? But as we as we continue to grow and evolve, I also know that I'm not in control. Right. Right. I have to God allow, is in control. Yes. I yeah. have to allow myself to be humbled right. enough to listen to the direction of where I need to go. And so that's what I've From been able to From a power greater than yeah. yourself. And sometimes that looks like mentorship mm -hmm. and it's always God, but sometimes he speaks through mentorship. Yeah. And, you know, and I see like a pattern in your life why you like just give up trying to control it because everything that happened that changed your life from what I can see, you weren't in control of, you weren't in control of them cutting you. Right. You know, you weren't in control of the, just the random UAs. Uh -huh. You weren't in control of, um, 
even calling your friend and him coming to get you. Uh -huh. You know, all you did was make a call. You don't know where that was going to go. Maybe you would have, like, not answered, you right. know. And then going, it was like thing by thing, but you weren't in the league. God was just, like, ordering your steps all the way through. Yes. Yeah, and now, and I love that. I see that. So, like, what are you doing now? Like, what, you know, what's your role? Um, what, what do you do? Well, I do a variety of and things. And you've been clean how long? 12 years. 12 years. 12 wow. years, 4-30-2010. I'm forever grateful uh, for that date. But uh, right now, I work for the Oregon Health Authority. I am an operations and policy analyst. Um, they say number Ooh. two. But I am also an um, advisory council coordinator. Um, so I do a few different things. Um, this is a, uh, I haven't even been there a year yet. So this is like 10 months. So I'm still integrating into my role mm -hmm. um, and things. But I come from before, after DePaul, three and a half years there, then I transitioned to the Imani Center through Central City Concern. Mm -hmm. And I worked there for five and a half years. I was a peer support specialist and then became um, a peer support slash counselor um, at the Imani Center. Um, but one of that on that line and, and, and in that experience, I was able to do something that I always wanted to do. And that was work with my people, African-Americans. Right. Culturally yes. specific. Yeah. And right? uplift. Yeah. Yeah. And uplift. It was hard. Why was that important for you? It was important because no, it's nothing about us without us. Right. I'm going to say that. I'm going to say that. Again. I said that again. Nothing about us about us about us nothing about us without us i'm sorry i said it wrong nothing about us without us right mm -hmm. and it wasn't like i just took that concept from back then it's like what our mantra is today mm -hmm. like from the oregon health authority that's one of our things for the office of recovery and resilience where i work but it takes me back to my experience of wanting to work with african-americans see there's different there's just different intersections when we look at our people, right? Mm -hmm. We we come with this beauty, we come with soul, we come with gifts, mm -hmm. but everybody is not the same. Right. Every African American that you come not in contact is not the same. So what I learned in that experience is how do I adjust? How do I adjust my lens to each experience? And that took some practice. Cuz mm -hmm. I struggled my first couple of years, right? Cuz I was like, man, this is hard. You know what I mean? Yeah, I was going to say, so like when I'm looking at you, you've got all this success, you've done all these things, and you're really, really positive. And that's why I love you because, you know, I'll call you like, whoa, fix me, <laughs> help me, you know. Um, and you always got something that feeds my spirit and feeds my soul. And I know to live like that, mm -hmm. you have to constantly feed your spirit and your yeah. soul because I do the same things. Like you pour into me, I pour into other folks. But like my help has to come from something much larger, Yeah. right? So but there are those inner critics that'll tell you inside, inside your own head, like, you can't do that. Yeah. What are you thinking? You know, you ain't got a degree, yeah. you know, and then here you are making all these changes and stuff like that. If you had, um, well, first I want to ask you, what do you do when you feel uh, fear or you feel doubt? And then um, in your whole life, like if you had a piece of advice you would give your old self, what would it be? Ooh, a piece of advice I would give my old self is never give in. And never give up, right? Never give in and never give up. Never give in and never give up. Okay. And and that's it's so profound because I never gave in when I played sports. I never gave in. Right. But when it came to living life, I didn't know how to live life. If I wasn't guided when I was a youngster, by the time I was 24 years old and I lost the guidance, that I didn't know how to live. Right. 
Yeah. Ooh. Right. I didn't know how to live. So the other thing that I'm doing today, right? Mm. I'm a high school football coach. Oh, wow. Right? Uh-huh. And then I also have my own businesses called Dynamic Athlete Solutions, which I am help helping to save the lives of young people by creating trainings that are culturally responsive, right? For um, the audiences are student athletes or young people, um, coaches, and then also leaders. So leadership staff and coaches oh, wow. and for student athletes. And my whole thing is when I look at my experience when I was younger is these different audiences work together closely with these young people, but they very rarely communicate with mm-hmm. each other right right, right. so it's if, like a, a whole solar system yeah a whole village right. yeah just all staying connected and, and if i'm if you are the leader the principal mercedes mm-hmm. and the next thing you know i'm working for you but you know i'm one of your best coaches but you know i'm too scared or you might have shot me down on some stuff i'm not going to tell you certain things that happens with a kid right because right. that's my experience with sports yeah. and the whole idea is you don't have to tell the dark all the dark things but you can start to realize, hey, when I don't know how to handle something, I need some help. Everybody can use some help. And so mm-hmm. stop, start accessing opportunities to better people's selves, right, to access information. Because I don't have all the answers. When I don't, man, I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask somebody else because right. I don't know instead of going off bad or old information. And that's what I used to do all the time. Sometimes right. I still do. I ain't perfect. Right. I'll go right back to that default of, oh, all right, I know. No, you don't. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, like, let me pause and stop. And that comes from recovery, too, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. Asking, and I remember the one of the first principles they said um, in recovery was, like, surrender. And I was like, I mean, I'm, I was raised by a Native American mom. So it was like, surrender? Absolutely yeah. not. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then ask questions. Like, even my black side, too. We don't want to, like, burden anybody. Yes. Or, you know, it's like, we'll do it ourselves. But... In life, that actually count works against us, yes. especially for addicts mm-hmm. and alcoholics. Yeah, so mm-hmm. you would definitely tell people to reach out, ask for help, open your mouth. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and the and the biggest thing is don't give in don't. and don't give up. That's right. Never give in and never give up. Something that that also too, like some of the things that you and I have covered and 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 passed uh, in the past is. Sometimes the thing that people don't realize about us in in recovery, that uh, there's the 3H concept, right? Mm -hmm. And I try to live my life like this, right? There's help. Sometimes we don't know that we need help. So Mm -hmm. how do we find it? The next thing is hope. Sometimes I can be hopeless. And all I need is just a little hope from somebody to just say, man, you can. And then the third H is healing. How do I get to a place when I can start healing from the things that I experienced, the things that I put other people through, the things that we've experienced together? Right. How can we heal? So I take that approach in my life of when I'm working with people professionally Mm. and it it spills over into my, my, my life, like working with young people or even with my kids or my loved ones, it's like certain concepts. People need certain things. Like I need that. Right. (laughs) Right. right. Yeah. Don't get it twisted. I need help all the time because I have this magical magnifying mind that sometimes the mind can, can wander, but can wander off, but I can always bring it back and I can center it with God. Right. Because, because that entity 
the light source, you know, the the everlasting spirit is always there. It's just a matter of when I can tap in. Sometimes I don't want to. I right. want to feel yeah, that. Yeah, like that conscious contact is there. He's there, but we don't know if we want to go for it or open it up, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much. I'm going to let you go because I know you have so much to do, and I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk to me and tell your story because it's so important, you know, and I think the world of you. Um, so say the name of your organization one more time so that we can find you. We can, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dynamic Athlete Solutions uh, is the company, um, African-American owned, right? Um, and then you could check out my website, and it's www dynamic athlete solutions altogether.com. So oh, I'll make okay. sure I say it again, www.dynamicathletesolutions.com. .com. Okay. Right. Got and it. That's how you can, that's how you can find me. So from, for myself, like, thank you for uh, allowing me this space and, and telling a little bit about, you know, my story and, and being on Mercedes second chance. <laughs> this is awesome. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Well, Thanks for listening. Please like, share, subscribe, and visit our website at mercedessecondchance.com.